The StoryCast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to StoryCastPodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad. And we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. Thanks. Whether on holidays or plain old Tuesdays, celebrating with a best bud or unwinding all by your lonesome, there's something we all share and share we do. From our ancestors' millennia past to modern day do-it-yourselfers, one common thread connects us across culture and heritage, age and gender, religion and orientation. One manifestation of the way that we as human beings celebrate, replenish our palate, and blow off a little steam. From basements and bar rooms to airplanes and arenas, most of us can agree on one shared luxury of the human experience. With a history and tradition as rich as its scrumptious flavors and favors, one thing is for certain. There's something in the water. This time on the StoryCast, beer. If only beer could talk, oh, the stories it could tell. So, first a brief history of beer to set those stories free. Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. That's a quote often seen on festival t-shirts and metallic pub signs. It's actually erroneously attributed to Benjamin Franklin, but that credit has since been debunked. What he actually said was similar, but in reference to wine grape crops. However, Benjamin Franklin did have this to say about beer. In wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, in water there is bacteria. And there's some serious truth to that. Here's a concise timeline of the history of beer by Professor Linda Rayleigh of Texas Tech University. Historians speculate that prehistoric nomads may have made beer from grain and water before even learning how to make bread. Beer became ingrained into the culture of civilizations with no significant viticulture. Noah's provisions included beer on the ark. In 4300 BC, Babylonian clay tablets detail recipes for beer, and beer was a vital part of the civilization of the Babylonian, Assyrian, Egyptian, Hebrew, Chinese, and Inca cultures. Babylonians produced beer in large quantities with around 20 varieties. Beer at this time was so valued that it was sometimes used to pay workers as part of their daily wages. Early cultures often drank beer through straws to avoid the grain holes left in the beverage. Egyptians first brewed beer commercially for use by royalty, served in golden goblets for medical purposes, and as a necessity to be included in burial provisions for the journey to the hereafter. Different grains were even brewed in different cultures. Africa used millet, maize, and cassava. North America used persimmon and agave. South America used corn, sweet potatoes. Japan used rice, China used wheat, Russians used rye, and Egyptians used barley. 
1600 BC, Egyptian texts contain 100 medical prescriptions calling for beer. By 55 BC, Roman legions would introduce beer to Northern Europe. By 23 BC, the Chinese would be brewing beer. In the first half of the Middle Ages, brewing began to be practiced in Europe, shifting from family tradition to centralized production in monasteries and convents. During medieval times, beer was used for tithing, trading, payment, and even taxing. In 1080, hops began to be used in the brewing process. By the year 1200, beer making is firmly established as a commercial enterprise in Germany, Austria, and England. The Germans would prefer cold temperature lagers stored in caves in the Alps, while the English, well, they preferred their mild temperature ales stored in cellars. By the 1400s, German brewers would develop the lager method of brewing and create their first brewing guild. And just when you thought brewing beer was a learned trade traversing Asia and Europe, in 1492, Columbus would find Indians making beer from corn and black birch sap. By 1516, Bavarian brewing guilds would push for the now famous purity laws to make it illegal to use any ingredients but water, barley, and hops in the brewing of beer. They didn't know yeast even existed yet. Queen Elizabeth I of England always drank strong ale for breakfast. In 1587, the first brew beer in the New World was at Sir Walter Raleigh's colony in Virginia but the colonists sent requests to England for better beer. In 1602, Dr. Alexander Knoll discovers that ale can be stored longer in cork-sealed glass bottles. By 1612, the first commercial brewery would open in New Amsterdam, which is Manhattan, after colonists advertised in London newspapers for experienced brewers. When the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620, they stopped because their beer supplies were running low. And then the modern history of beer was born. In 1810, Munich established Oktoberfest as an official celebration. By the mid-19th century, German immigrant brewers introduced cold maturation lagers to the U.S. and started the likes of Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Coors, Stroh, Schlitz, and Pabst. The modern era of brewing in the U.S. began in the late 1800s with commercial refrigeration, automatic bottling, pasteurization, and railroad distribution. In 1876, Pasteur unraveled the secrets of yeast in the fermentation process, and he also developed pasteurization to stabilize beers 22 years before the process was ever applied to milk. By 1880, there were approximately 2,300 breweries in the U.S. In 1890, Pabst is the first U.S. brewer to sell over 1 million barrels in a year. By 1914, commercial competition would drive the number of operating breweries from 2,300 down to 1,400. And then in 1933, dark days, as Prohibition ended, beer. By 1935, only 160 breweries would survive Prohibition. In 1935, the beer can is introduced. By 1966, Budweiser would be the first brand to sell 10 million barrels in a year. And by 91, the U.S. produces 20% of the world's beer volume. And the rest is history. In the current times, the U.S. beer industry alone produces and sells over 2.6 billion cases of beer a year. The estimated annual per capita consumption, 22.7 gallons, that's per person. Beer drinkers worldwide every year consume 5.9 billion gallons. That's enough to fill the entire Houston Astrodome 12 times. That's a lot of beer. So, whether you throw back a few Bud Lights with your drinking buddies, or fancy yourself an IPA girl, that's where beer came from, and you, you define what beer has become. So, choose your pints wisely, my friends.
prohibition aimed to wipe out the scourge of booze from society. We all know that failed, just like every other attempt of our government to micromanage our lives under the shroud of morality. Even now, we suffer through the government's syntax for many of our vices. The ruling authorities of the 1920s even called the Great Prohibition the Noble Experiment, as if nobility was even a part of it. But in true American fashion, those poor souls in that sober decade plus pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and began concocting illicit beverages on their own. Necessity breeds invention. From great struggle comes great might. Thus, home brewing was born. Mothers in the kitchen washing out the jugs, sisters in the pantry bottling the suds, fathers in the cellar mixing up the hops, Johnny's on the front porch watching for the cops. That's a poem by a New York State Rotary Club member during Prohibition. Prohibition accentuated the home in home brewing. Many American families recount and cherish tales of grandpa's inept experimental attempts to brew beer in the kitchen and grandma's gallant efforts to hide the results from Prohibition agents. Although most home brewers practiced their hobbies with minimal adverse consequences, this home brewing boom did have casualty. The reputation of home brewing. In an era where intoxicating liquors were illegal, the ingredients to produce them were not. Early 1900s author John Corrin wrote, For so long as the fruits of the orchard, the grain and roots of the field remain, the distiller and home brewer have an inexhaustible supply of the raw materials for producing alcohols. It is a matter of common notoriety that we are becoming a nation of adepts in the making of intoxicants. While Prohibition formally ended the sale of intoxicating beverages from 1920 to 1933, it inspired an explosion in home brewing. Beer consumption increased gradually during the 1920s, climbing to about 25% of its pre-Prohibition rate by 1930. The home brewing revolution was sustained with the eager assistance of merchants who sold malt extracts for, quote, baking. Before Prohibition, there was little or no malt extract on the market. Now there's an enormous amount of baking done according to the amounts of extracts being sold, wrote A.W. McDaniel, a Prohibition agent. Eight years after Prohibition began, more than 500 malt and hop shops prospered in New York City. Another 100,000 stores sold malt syrup nationwide, including Atlantic and Pacific, Kroger, and Piggly Wiggly grocery stores. Prior to Prohibition, only 500 shops sold malt syrup nationwide. By 1928, 25,000 shops, including Woolworths, were selling home brewing equipment, such as bottle cappers and tubing. Sales of malt syrup boomed. In 1926, 438 million pounds were produced, and in 1927, 450 million pounds. An estimated 90% of the syrup was used to brew 6.5 billion pints of beer. Some home brewers made beer from scratch, while others supplemented the potency of near beer, which was legal, with the help of malt syrups. Even with this use, between 1920 and 1928, production of near beer plummeted from 285 million gallons to only 100 million gallons. In one year, hop sales, excluding sales from near beer and exports, exceeded 13 million pounds, the vast majority of which was presumably used to brew beer at home. By 1929, the Prohibition Bureau, using sales figures for hops, malt, and other ingredients, estimated that Americans brewed 700 million gallons of beer at home that year. Businesses thrived by selling equipment and other supplies to make liquor and beer. In 1928, a writer for a Collier's magazine observed, 
It looks very much as if the wet half of the population is busy making wet goods and the dry half is busy selling the ingredients in the machinery. In the mid-1920s, sales of homebrewing paraphernalia and ingredients amounted to roughly $136 million annually. Business was so good that as their influence and income grew, the malt syrup manufacturers and merchants formed their own national trade associations. As producers, retailers, and wholesalers, these associations promoted their products in trade journals. Advertising and selling malt syrups without running afoul of the law was a tremendous challenge. Although not illegal per se, the possession and sale of brewing ingredients and equipment could not be advertised to indicate that their intended use was for brewing or beverage purposes. As a result of this law, the syrup industry had its product designated as food by the patent office and stressed this clarification to its members. Some manufacturers allowed the advice of the Malt Syrup Manufacturers Association and advertised their syrups with an emphasis on the virtues of the syrup for baking and other food-related uses. Manufacturers also omitted the words hops and hop-flavored from their labels. Some manufacturers did not always adhere to these recommendations. One advertisement of the day was illustrated with a drunken camel leading four others equally besotted in a rendition of Sweet Adeline. In a thinly veiled attempt to keep fellow syrup manufacturers at bay, the advertisement also mentioned food uses for the syrup, such as hop-flavored muffins. In the first 10 years of Prohibition, federal agents seized 1 billion gallons of malt liquor. The beer was customarily described as undrinkable, unsanitary, and filthy. Home-brewed beers were characterized as sludge-like with a mud-brown appearance, a sour and yeasty smell, and a taste like laundry soap. Some noted after-effects could be equally disagreeable. Beers were described as explosive, with a tendency to cause severe headaches and an inability to focus one's eyes. Hugh F. Fox, secretary of the U.S. Brewers Association and a leading spokesman for the wets and the brewing industry, called homebrew beer, quote, troublesome and messy and not very successful, and added that one could not produce a, quote, light, palatable, and wholesome brew without the use of highly specialized and costly apparatus and facilities for sterilizing, filtering, and refrigeration. Although not always refreshing, homebrews were not nearly as dangerous as other alcoholic beverages concocted during the era. Drinking homemade liquors had dreadful consequences, including paralysis and death. Tens of thousands of people died from alcohol poisoning from beverages made from denatured alcohol intended for industrial use. This liquor contained traces of poisons such as sulfuric and hydrochloric acids and wood alcohol. According to the U.S. Public Health Service, almost 12,000 people died from imbibing poisonous liquors just in 1927. Embalming fluid, antifreeze, and rubbing alcohol were also used to make home liquors. Under the National Prohibition Act, any room, house, building, boat, vehicle, structure, or place where intoxicating liquor is manufactured, sold, kept, or bartered is declared to be a common nuisance. The misdemeanor of home brewing could result in a fine of up to $1,000 and or imprisonment of up to one year. That law, though, was rarely enforced because home brewers mostly operated within the privacy of their own homes, and it was difficult to invade private homes. Law enforcement encountered a legal quandary in the attempted enforcement of anti-homebrewing laws and as a result did not enforce them on private individuals. To search a private dwelling, agents needed a search warrant. However, warrants could only be issued if there was evidence a residence was being used for the sale of liquor rather than production for home use. When homebrewers were brought into court, it often resulted in mild or no sanctions. Nebraska attorney Frank Bartos was nearly disbarred as a result of his homebrewing. Agents caught Bartos with 700 quarts of home-brewed beer, and even though he violated the law, an appeals court found that the act was, 
quote, in private social life and not professional character. Homebrewing was deemed to not be an act of moral turptitude, but rather a private act that did not reflect on Bartos's fitness to practice law. One judge wrote, The offense of Bartos was possibly the mildest that could be committed under the National Prohibition Act were it not for the large quantity of beer so made. So it came to be known under the National Prohibition Act that homebrew was not the same definition as beer. Although beer was recognized under the law as being illegal, homebrew was not. The homebrewing boom, though, was not sustained after Prohibition ended. The often muddy, unpalatable, and amateurish beers of the homebrewer lost favor to the pale, lightly hopped beers of the professional brewers. Brewers geared up for production as soon as Prohibition ended, and homebrewing did not become legal again until 1979. Shortly after midnight on the day Prohibition officially ended, a brewer from St. Louis delivered two cases of beer to the White House with the salutation, Here's to you, President Roosevelt. That was from Amy Jabloner of Homebrew Magazine, Brew Your Own. So, whether because the water was once endlessly chock full of bacteria, or just because we plain liked it, throughout the ages, beer has been a fundamental part of the way we both hydrate and celebrate. But beyond hydration, recreation, and socialization, the honest fact is, if you drink enough of it, Beer gets you drunk. So this is comedian Larry Miller's take on things. It's my favorite comedy bit of all time. The five levels of drinking. There are five levels of drinking. Six if you live in a trailer park. Okay. But never mind that now. We will deal with five. See if these look familiar. Level one. Let's say it's 11 o'clock on a weeknight, you had a few beers. You get up to leave because you have work the next day and one of your friends buys another round. One of your unemployed friends. But here at level one, you think to yourself, well, oh, uh, uh, as long as I get seven hours sleep, ah, I'm cool. Ah. Level two, midnight. Had a few more beers. You've just spent 20 minutes arguing against artificial turf. <laughs> you get up to leave again, but at level two, a little devil appears on your shoulder. And now you're thinking, hey, I'm out with my friends. <laughs> That's important to me. What am I working for anyway? Oh, besides. As long as I get five hours sleep. <laughs> ah, I'm cool. <laughs> Level three, one in the morning. You've abandoned beer for tequila. <laughs> You've just spent 20 minutes arguing for artificial turf. <laughs> and now you're thinking, our waitress is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. <laughs> Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> but see, at level three, you love the world. You feel so good on the way to the bathroom. You buy a drink for the stranger at the end of the bar just because you like his face. You get drinking fantasies. You come back and, fellas, hey, fellas, if we all bought our own bar, we could live together forever. 
Yeah, but at level three, that devil's a little bit bigger. And he's buying. And you're thinking, well, oh, come on now. Oh, come on here now. As long as I get three hours sleep and a complete change of blood. And the devil is bartending. <laughs> For last call, you ordered a bottle of rum and a Coke. You are artificial turf. This time on your way to the bathroom, you punch the stranger at the end of the bar just because you don't like his face. And now you're thinking, our busboy is the best looking man I've ever seen. You and your friends decide to leave right after you get thrown out. And one of you knows an after-hours bar. And here, at level four, you actually think to yourself, well, oh, as long as I'm only going to get a few hours sleep anyway, I might as well stay up all night. That'd be good for me. Nah. I don't mind going to that board meeting looking like Keith Richards. Yeah. Ah. I'll turn that around, make it work for me. Oh, besides, as long as I get 31 hours sleep tomorrow. Ah. Five in the morning. After unsuccessfully trying to get your money back at the tattoo parlor, yeah, but I don't know anyone named Ruby. At this point, even the devil is going, uh, I got to turn in. Oh, no, I got to be in hell at nine. Yeah, I got that brunch with Hitler. I can't miss that. <laughs> you and your friends wind up across the state line in a bar filled with guys who've been in prison as recently as that morning. You're all drinking some kind of thick blue liquor, usually used to clean combs. A waitress with fresh stitches in her head comes over. You're thinking, someday I'm going to marry that girl. <laughs> Suddenly, one of your friends stands up and screams, 
We're driving to Florida! And passes out. You crawl outside for air and you hit the worst part of level five. The sun. The sun. You weren't expecting that, were you? You never do. Man, you walk out of a bar in daylight and people are on their way to work. Or jogging. And they look at you. And they know. And they say, who's Ruby? Look, folks, let's be honest. If you're 19 and you stay up all night, it's a victory. It's like you beat the night. You remember that feeling. If you're over 30, man, that sun is like God's flashlight. We all say the same prayer then. Say it with me now. I swear I will never do this again. How long? As long as I live. And some of us have that little addition. And this time, I mean it. The StoryCast will return in two weeks with more eclectic stories wrapped in an intriguing theme. Yeah, I had a couple beers.